There he is. He's on stage. There it is. There it is. Jake Fisher, oh, you there? Man. Yeah, I'm here. You have me. What's up? <laughs> I'm good. You got me tied up in this new technology. Listen, man, we got to keep you young. We got to keep you young and fresh and updated <laughs> and all the, all the happenings. I like it. I like it. Something new. What's up, sir? How are you? I'm doing well. I'm super sleep deprived. I'm not going to mm. lie. Filing a gamer of sorts. Uh, after locker access for the first time in two and a half years, took me a lot longer than I thought on Wednesday night in Brooklyn. Um, so I've kind of been uh, playing catch up ever since. How about you? How are you doing? I'm hanging. I I missed the one key word there. You said you're super what? Just tired. I'm wiped out. Oh yeah, yeah. Sleep no, deprived. I yeah, I mean, got you. Yeah. Uh, you can probably hear it in my voice a little bit. I did uh, Warriors, Lakers uh, Tuesday, and then Kings, Blazers Wednesday, and then uh, was on the fence for the past 36 hours about whether I was going to rally and, and go down to Warriors, Nuggets, and I think I am. But, yeah, I can relate. I mean, you know, you go from not only the locker room access and writing, but just in general – you know, going to bed at a reasonable hour during the off season. And the next thing you know, you're like Warriors Lakers was, was hilariously awful in terms of, you know, the game ended at like damn near 11 o'clock. You know what I mean? Um, because of the ring ceremony and everything. Yeah. No one wants to hear so us. Compl- no one relate. wants to hear us complain about uh, our sleep schedules with, with this life that we lead. But um, you just asked me how I was. So I was answering. That's all it is, man. It's all right. We, we, we're human, man. We can complain a little bit. It's all right. But I hear you. Um, we are we are lucky to do what we do. Yeah, man. I will be – I'm lucky to be heading to uh, Toronto, Brooklyn tonight. Um, I want to – let's just well, – we'll take some questions for people too whenever anyone has the has the gall to, to pick your, your wisdom-filled brain. Um, the call queue is open. Feel free. Um, we will definitely – Get it going. I think you said you're at Lakers Warriors, so let's just jump right in there. I mean, obviously, I'd be remiss to not not talk about the the Hollywood story unfolding. There's no shooters, blah, blah, blah. I mean, you you wrote a pretty extensive, or you were part of a pretty extensive reporting on where the Lakers kind of – the Lakers, by my read on the situation, that Lakers people – have said that they were basically on the one yard line of bringing an offer to Indiana to get Miles Turner and Buddy Heald. They held back. They're holding their options. Russ is still here. Where where, where do you think the the natural conclusion could ultimately be? Do you think that? I mean, people are, have definitely asked me like, how long will this experiment or whatever last? Why have why didn't they make the Pacers trade? What's kind of your general sense on on that that carrot that everyone knows is dangling over the transaction board? Um, yeah, it's it's funny because it's a little I think it's a little counterintuitive in terms of what the ripple effect of their early season ugliness might be. You know, because even though you know yesterday against the Clippers, like all right, competitively way better, defensively way better. And then you have these moments late, you know, Russ is puffing his chest because he stops Kawhi a couple of times. And there were things I think they can hang their hat on 
where it got a little better, but then you look at the box and it's like, oh, cool. So Russ and Patrick Beverly were one for 18, you know, like that's not tenable. Um, and, and it obviously just yet again shows you where the, the vulnerabilities are in the roster. But so you would think that would mean, all right, time for Rob Palenka to pick up the phone and call Kevin Pritchard and the Pacers and go ahead and just bite the bullet on those two first round picks. But, you know, we, we kind of wrote this in that piece you alluded to is the, there's been a, like a mentality and I do get it within the Lakers that like, they're not doing that deal unless it takes them from good to great, essentially. Like if it takes them from a playoff team to a title team and, and they have shown no interest in doing it. If it takes them from, you know, bad to good, but you know, but essentially mediocre. So I'd be stunned if, you know, I don't think they're going to do that anytime soon. Um, but the other side of that coin is that, like, if it continues like this, you, you got to do something to address the tension in the room. You know, LeBron waited all of one game to to call a spade a spade and, and highlight the shooting and the roster construction. Late, hashtag lasers you know, the rust thing. Yes, baby. Are you, are you, are you saying that – are you yeah. self-proclaiming to be a laser? Are you saying you're a marksman from deep at the Lakers <laughs> to match their team? I am a marksman in, in spirit, uh, you know, and certainly not in literal basketball ability. Uh, I, was, I was way more Ben Wallace than I was Clay Thompson. But, um, but yes, wow, drive lasers by only. shot at and, Ben Wallace. Wow, yeah. look at you. <laughs> <laughs> but, like, they uh, – the, the tension, call it tension and angst, awkwardness, that part, it's like they can't, they can't just have this be their, their vibe um, for, for too long. You know, the, the Westbrook thing in particular, it's just like, man, a lot of the, and you know, this stuff goes like the, uh, my dog says hello, apparently <laughs> she's barking here. Um, the going into the season, like part of their choice to be patient here was because they wanted to see what Darvin Ham could do. And, you know, and, and specifically, like, hey, he's he's established a good rapport with Russ. Um, he will have conceivably some sway over Russ in ways that Frank Vogel did not, and that should benefit the group. And it's just like, all right, cool. You ran him off the bench one time in Sacramento in the preseason. He wasted no time in blaming his hamstring injury on that choice. And now suddenly he's a starter again, even though it seems pretty clear that Darwin would like to bring him off the bench. So that does not portend um, for success. And uh, so I don't know what else they do, but but I don't think the Indiana thing is, is the solution they're going to grab for. Yeah. I mean, it definitely seemed like he blamed it on that, right? I will say in defense of yeah. us, I know these guys are all creatures of habit and creatures of routine. And I really do think it is not – the cra- the craziest thing to say that he was a fish out of water coming off the bench because he's been doing the same thing for however long he's been doing it, right? And I don't think that's the reason, but I, I at least am empathetic or sympathetic, I should say, to him not necessarily, like, figuring out the right way for him to come off the bench just, just the very first time. It was a task. That doesn't mean you shouldn't give it, a, give it another shot, you know? Like, I think, well, it's also, and not to step yeah. on you there, but like, it's also just the, it's the trend of when the going gets tough for Russ and his Lakers life, 
he's he just has not been very accountable publicly. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there was a lot of this last season, a lot of pointing of the finger. And and then, I mean, the optics of the Clippers game, to me, were were almost just comically bad for Russ. And, and to the point where, like, the it's so petty between the Clippers and the Lakers. Like, and, and I know this, I'm not actually saying this happened, but the thought did actually cross my mind that it was like, did somebody from the Clippers, like, go to Kawhi and say, you know what would be hilarious? You should come <laughs> off the bench. And be a, and, and just be like a total champ and a team guy doing it. And then make sure you do a post-game interview where you get asked on national television about whether or not it affected your routine, which did happen. And then have your answer just kind of be, no, I was fine, you know. And, and so, like, the optics of seeing Kawhi, you know, handle that. And I know it's apples to oranges. Kawhi still knows that he has an organization building around him as opposed to Russ is living a different life. But Kawhi did it. Steph Curry did it in the playoffs, you know, going back with the Warriors, Andre Iguodala chose to, to do it. Um, I hear you, but I just think Russ has to know that, that any sort of thing remotely close to an excuse right now is not going to be well received. For sure. No, that was, that was definitely where I was headed. Like, you just have to also be aware, like, this is, I mean, it's applicable to various aspects of this business. Like, this is the biggest stage in the world you know i mean it's the, the the nba is the nba and the lakers are the lakers so every little decision every little sound bite it's going to get blasted across social media put on billboards being the lead subject matter of studio shows across the country like come right. giving any hint of deflection of poor performance or lack of accountability to use your uh verbiage it's going to get picked up and it's going to get scrutinized and it's going to be, it's going to be made worse. You know, that's just kind of the nature of the beast right now. Um, and like even same thing across the aisle in the East where Philly's owing to like, I'm sure Joel Embiid is battling plantar fasciitis, but like, it is interesting that doc says that today after he's been sluggish and looking out of shape and what happened, like, it's just, I don't know. It would have been interesting to have learned that information in training camp. Am I right? Am I looking right. at that wrongly? No, you are breaking news to me. I don't know. I didn't read enough this morning. Clearly, I had not seen those comments. There you go. About, Sam Amick, your yeah, response. And, uh, yeah, I'm with you. It's. I mean, Doc is protecting his his guy, sure. and so I do under. I understand why he does it. But I also, you know, I tell you what, like, I think, you know, we could pivot a little bit to Philly here. I know we were texting about them a little bit. Like, I think Doc's, it's going to be really interesting to see, A, obviously what the Sixers ultimately do this season. Do they meet their ceiling? And and that's a tough one to meet because they are, you know, the ceiling is championship. And if they don't, what, you know, what is the story going to hold for Doc in terms of the way he manages talent? You know, if you go back to, that super interesting training camp video that was captured <laughs> by NBA. It was TV captured. Interesting held... verb choice. Yeah. Well, yeah, I don't know how you see it. I mean, I, I'm still convinced that, and I did kind of look into it. Like, yes, the Sixers players knew that there were eyes and ears everywhere. Um, no, there was not any sort of, like, right before that moment yeah. reminder to James that, hey, you're like, so no, I don't think he – and I know him a fair amount. I just don't think that he that he processed all of that and, and 
expected it to be shared with the world. Um, You know, Doc knew, obviously. Um, Yeah. And so Doc, in that conversation, what you're sensing is that, you know, it's like an old school kind of Kobe and Shaq discussion with the coach and the star player about who is going to get fed first. And Doc's making it clear to James, we got to feed Joel first. And and to James's credit, I, I think you sensed a guy who was not pushing back in terms of not being a team guy. He's, he's a smart basketball guy and a future Hall of Famer who was telling him, like, I still got some of that James Harden magic in me. Just kind of like, don't forget what I can do to an opposing defense. But it was made clear by Doc that it starts with Joel. And now you got Doc defending Joel when it comes to plantar fasciitis. And you watch that game, and if you're, you know, picking a fall guy for that game, I think it's Embiid, you know. And it's it's the pace um, in general. It's the sluggish, you know, just not getting back on defense, which Stan Van Gundy was killing him for on the telecast. Um, and it's the idea, I mean, even late, forget how much time was left, but Joel had a, you know, step back, just a bad look on the right side in a key possession late after James had been cooking that just felt very much like, because I'm the guy, I, I have to shoot this. Um, and they didn't pull off the game. So, you know, Doc's choice to to have, you know, James be not really even 1B, but to be number two, um, I think will be interesting to look back at. Yeah, I think, I mean, I definitely talked about it on the show. I'm sure you and I talked about it off air, like, a lot of people on the league immediately when this deal came to fruition to bring James to Philly were talking about how those two guys aren't exactly a perfect fit stylistically. And it's actually, this would be a thought to bring up later um, when we touch on Sacramento. Because um, I have come to appreciate the challenge of team building through this lens of like – if, if the game really is about star collecting or, or adding as much star talent together as you can, like you do have to just go and pounce on when the guys become available, right? Like there, doesn't, there isn't necessarily a match made in heaven all the time. You just got to have to have to make it work. Right. Like the Aaron and DeMontis are clearly a situation like that where I'm not saying it's an oil and water fit by any stretch, but like they came together for circumstances that weren't necessarily because Everyone in, in the NBA, all, all the all the factors, all the people involved were like, oh, DeMontis Sabonis and De'Aaron Fox want to play together on a perfect deal. Let's make it happen. You know, even, even Trey Young and DeJounte Murray, like they, by all accounts, wanted to play together. We're signaling they wanted to play together. That that synergy was a main proponent and why they got together. But they're not even a perfect fit in on paper by all accounts, you know. So it is about kind of navigating right. – uh, an imperfect, perfect pairing, if you will, in a lot of situations. And to bring it back to Philly, I mean, it, it's it's as borne out in in broad daylight where you see the see Joel and James with a high pick and roll, and they're just not perfectly comfortable in that situation, right? And that's the obvious. But I think it's also the the, the general gravitational posting of B while James is. Um, doing his dribble thing that that's gonna it's just gonna continue to be I mean, we're not breaking in news here it's gonna continue to be a thing that gets uh scrutinized and it will have to continue to be something that gets developed and grown over time um but honestly man the thing i 
came away with from last night's game. I thought about I thought it's got it got overshadowed in game one too against Boston um, because he's been playing so well offensively. A big thing too. I mean, James is James is right back in Houston's form in terms of defense as well. I mean, the the, the Grayson Allen go ahead layup uh, at the end of the game last night. I mean, it was just clearly hard and waiting at the left elbow, watching the ball, and Allen just kind of walked his way down the lane for a pretty decisive bucket with like one ten to go, basically. That and in that moment, you're like, oh well, yeah. He's James Harden. He's been cooking for two straight games. Right. Sure, he can just go right back down the court and get another one. And they did. They went up two there. But then, you know, every little bucket there matters. And I think that's something that is going to continue to bear its ugly head that hasn't really gotten any attention right now. That is fair. I mean, that was uh, that was part of the Houston experience. So when people say, hey, the, the Houston James Harden is back, uh, you know, I'm sure that Joel and the Sixers would prefer he leave that part behind. Uh, but you know, it's just, it is going to, they're so good, man. Like Tyrese Max really is, is such a good fit. I picked yeah, like, to make the and you see, finals, man. I'm saying this from, from the perspective you? of a yeah. believer. Yeah. And I mean, you know, watching James seemingly kind of execute what doc talked about in that, that pregame or training camp interview we talked about when he told them how big of a priority Maxie was. And then you see James, you know, throwing it ahead to Maxie and utilizing that you know, they can get it there. They can win a ton of games and, and who knows, maybe win the whole thing. But the tension, you know, you know, the two teams we decided to talk about first have that in common. Now, Sixers prospects are a whole lot better than the Lakers, but a little bit. But that tension <laughs> between <laughs> between elite players uh is has always been one of my favorite parts of doing the job, honestly. Like just covering these human dynamics and trying to understand you know, how these people are going to try to succeed together or, you know, or not. So um, they're still going to be really good. I mean, their schedule, obviously, right out the gate was brutal. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see what they can do. And meanwhile, welcome to the Tobias Harris experience, too. Like, I, I do, you know, this is maybe the fifth subplot for them of this season. Watching the game last night and thinking that, like, you know, last season you would hear stuff about, Tobias being a little frustrated that he was lost in the mm-hmm. shuffle, um, you know, and he's a really good player who, you know, as far as the tension and the in- internal conversation about, you know, everybody getting to eat, you know, I think that could rear its head at some point too. Yeah. Him and Tybal are going to continue to be discussed in trade chatter, not saying discussed definitively right. in actual ongoing negotiations, but you get my drift there. Um, let's go yep. back to the West Coast. And I mean, is Sac your hometown or or is that hometown is a town called Pleasanton, Pleasanton down in the San Francisco Bay, about uh, 45 minutes from San Francisco. So Sac is the uh, place that, that I went a very long time ago back in 1996 to go to Sacramento State University. Yeah. And uh, and we have been here ever since. So you wrote a nice piece in The Athletic today. We didn't write today, but it came out today about De'Aaron Fox. Maybe you did write it this morning. Who knows? Maybe you're burning the midnight oil. <laughs> They're making something in their right, there's, there's a whole backstory that you can appreciate as a, a very talented writer. Yeah, very um, he, uh, yeah I, I, let's just put it this way. I, I didn't really make the deadline I needed to make to, to get it pumped out the first day of the season. So that's on me. <laughs> and then 
rolled the dice and essentially was assuming incorrectly that the Kings could take care of Portland in game one so that so that this hopeful, optimistic story wouldn't have the wrong tone. Uh, <laughs> lo and behold, they, uh, you know, they they did not take care of business. And, you know, it, what can you do? But but yeah, it was it was written a few days ago. I will candidly share that I put in, I'll, I'll say this, vague, a vague request to talk to a key figure in Golden State about uh, the team culture, like the day before Draymond punched Jordan Poole. So... Uh, yeah, nice. not always, not always, not, not always predicting how these stories and narrative cycles will unfold accurately. Um, right, absolutely. But Tusac, um, I mean, people around the league are definitely bullish on them. I think they are kind of like the Knicks in like very different ways, but in that like kind of easy to flame, kind of easy to joke at their expense. But when you really look at the roster and when you talk to people around the NBA. They kind of are respecting both those units as like legitimate, like nine seed type teams. Going to be a tough out full of like nine, 10, 11 legit NBA players are going to make some uh, tough times for you as an opponent. And some players who are even obviously better than that, right? All-star caliber players. Um, What is your sense from being on the team the last, you know, couple of decades to even your time recently with this most recent piece on deer. And like, where do you sense that is in terms of actuality? Like, can they, can they really get this done? Is this really the year? I mean, they, they can absolutely be a, a nine ten team. Um, but, you know, if you, if you pull the standings up on your computer and you start playing the musical chairs yes. game in the West, you will see why, and I, I keep overreacting to one game, um, but in, in interviews I've done locally about their first game, it was like, if, of all the teams to lose to in game one, you cannot lose to Portland, because if you want to make the play-in tournament, Portland cannot be in the play-in tournament, mm-hmm. because there are nine other teams that I would bet my mortgage are going to make it. And I say that... Well, (laughs) lucky enough to not have that problem, but like it's, it's the Lakers are also on that list. So maybe I should not give them a playoff spot or a play in spot. Um, But you get the point, like in a vacuum, they are super interesting. I think they're talented. They're offensively potentially really dangerous, but then you watch that first game and it's the same story. It's been for 16 years with this franchise which is that they don't defend and they give up 115 points. They give up 30 plus points in three out of four quarters. They had, uh, you know, a third quarter where they gave up 19. That was kind of the only time they locked in. Um, and, and man, it's like, it, it was a lot of, you know, it's pretty hard to lose a game where they had so many highlights, you know, De'Aaron goes for 33, seven and seven. Now granted he had eight turnovers, which was definitely not good. Um, Kevin Herter comes in, you know, you talk about Sabonis being the one, two punch, but Herter who represents essentially the extremely controversial decision to trade Tyrese Halliburton to Indiana and to get Fox a better backcourt mate. Um, Herter comes in, I think he had 24, uh, and shot the lights out, you know, and, and 
or, you know, midway through the game, I was, and I was there in person, I was thinking, you know, I don't know why Mike Brown wasn't going to him more. He was a plus 20 in the first half. So Herter looks great. Sabonis so had a really bad night. He didn't look good at all. Um, but it's just the defense, man. Like they, you know, rim protections, a problem. Um, and then even, you know, Davion Mitchell gets a lot of, you know, understandable praise for being off night, you know, on that short list. Yeah, man, off night so and like about, being... it's about the nickname. We talked about this last week with Tom Haberstro about the mustache. Marketing is key. The fact that he's got the fact <laughs> that he's got that um he's got that billing, it's like very easy to put that two two words on top of a of a social media clip and it takes off. Right. Right. And then he comes out and, and this is like their last draft pick, you know, two drafts ago and, and and like he's extremely important. And I think he was one for nine or one for eight from the field and, and his plus minus was ugly. Um so yeah, I mean they they're gonna be I think they're gonna be good. But the thing that makes it uh you know, the 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 topic of this pod is tension, like the theme anyway. Like the Kings have their own tension because man, in this city, you know, it, it takes one game for the fans to start giving up. I mean, I have, you know, I don't know if you have this, uh, you know, in New York, but like you have friends who just root for certain teams. So you now your phone involves a, a somewhat constant thread of like their commentary on the local team. So that night, you know, I'm getting texts from neighbors that are like, oh, same old Kings, you know, and, and that's just how it goes because of this playoff drought. I mean, Jake, I go to the game and run our test was, uh, was a guest of the Beckman Adive, the King's owner, and Brad Miller was too. And it's just like seeing those guys, and you talk about making me feel old. It's like, yeah, but those are two of the guys I covered yeah. when I was the beat writer for that team that went to the playoffs in in two thousand six. And I mean, even when I sat down with the Aaron, you know, um, I told him I was like, man, it makes me feel kind of old. Like I was at that game. And he's looking at me like, you know, I might as well have a, a, a wheelchair and a, and a cane, yeah. you know. Um, it's just, it's a long time. Well, so, I was even telling someone you know, we'll see if they can actually do I'm something. only 28 compared to your old ass. But <laughs> <laughs> I was even explaining to someone the other day when I was, you know, I started really covering the league as an intern at Slam, summer 2013, May 2013, right before the draft. Went back to school in Boston. For the 13-14 season, had a slam credentials, writing stories for the website. Like, I was 19. Like, I thought I had an advantage compared to people like you to be able to relate to these kids. And now I really do feel like they're these kids because I'm 10 years older than Cade Cunningham and right. Paolo Boncaro. And honestly, I, I feel I feel the generational disconnect. I, I right. Just like in little – little, it's even – like and talking to my little cousins, like there's little words in the, in the lexicon and the discourse that you're just like, what? It's, it's kind of crazy. <laughs> no, for sure. For sure. It's funny. Cause you know, because I, I live within basically an hour and a half of the warriors, like, you know, listen, it's not rocket science. Like they're pretty damn good. So of course, regardless of what their locker room looked like, I would spend a fair amount of time around their team. Right. But that being said, one of my favorite parts of covering the Warriors, and to your point about generational gaps and connecting with players, is like they got a bunch of grown-ass men on that team. So I enjoy talking to Steph. I enjoy talking to Draymond, Andre Iguodala, you know, and even this new version of play that is like 
like essentially, you know, the next coming of Bill Walton with his, his kind of Zen master yes. life outlook. Like they have, they have a bunch of grownups, um, but, but I'm with you. I mean, if you're fighting that at 28, you know, yes, you, you better believe that I, I run into moments when it's like, damn, let me, let me sit down with, you know, Paolo Bancaro and, and find common ground. <laughs> I want to ask about Portland because I haven't seen them uh, really at all the last couple of years. Like schedule just works out badly. And I think even this year too, um, they're coming to New York during Thanksgiving, which I will be out of town. So I don't get a lot of Portland action. What, uh, sure. I mean, I think the biggest story that's been perpetrated by our side of the industry has been the excellent shade and sharp draft pick by one Mike Schmitz. Um, but is there, I mean, there definitely are skeptics in rival organizations that this remake, this remodel of the Blazers around Dame is really going to raise their ceiling much more than where it was before Joe Cronin took over and Chauncey Billups was the head coach. Um, obviously, it was a nice win that you weren't expecting them to get. Did you see anything that uh, is suggestive of brighter lights to come for Portland? I mean, I think you saw enough to make you watch again because it was very interesting, meaning that um, we are so programmed to just, you know, Trailblazers basketball equals game time, right? Like, that's what it is. Even when C.J. McCollum was there, it was still game time. And for them to win a game like that, when Dame didn't play all that well uh, and see Anthony Simons do some good things and see Sharp, you know, have basically just kind of a fun debut, the type that left Chauncey Billups, you know, raving about how happy he was for him. Um, it was interesting. But Jeremy Grant was probably, to me, the, uh, you know, the most interesting guy because – Late in this game when Fox is going off, I mean, Fox played really, really well offensively. You had Chauncey deciding to throw Jeremy at him, um, and then that's exactly what they had in mind when they went, you know, and, and did that deal because they wanted the versatility and they wanted, you know, defensively just more around Damian so that he could survive. It's almost analogous to like the early Steph Curry years in Gold State when, you know, Mark Jackson would put Clay Thompson on on the best, uh, you know, point guard on the other team. Um, so it's like, okay, Jeremy has the versatility to do some of that with, with you know, with wings and bigs. And then when they get Gary Payton the second back, it's even more of that component. You know, he's not playing yet. So, yeah, I mean, they, they get out and go. Um, and then, you know, the Dame part – is going to be interesting. I talked to Chauncey after the game about um, the conversations with Damien uh, kind of evolving his thinking and the the whole idea of we don't need you to be Superman anymore and uh, you're going to have your nights when you go for 40, go for 50, but, you know, let's do this differently. And he says that it has not been a tough sell. And so we'll see. I mean, they're they're obviously in that same – little uh, level with the Kings where it's like they're they're going to catch teams on some nights, you know, going to be hovering around 500, and, and we'll see if they can turn it into something. Um, I'm also 
I, I know Jason Quick wrote this in The Athletic. I'm also super curious to see what Chauncey himself does this year because um, very different situations, but both him and Ime last year, I think, made a lot of noise by being super blunt in the press, holding players accountable, throwing guys on the bus, honestly. Um, right. Like a page out of Phil Jackson, like old school, that doesn't really happen in this player empowerment, you know, catering to your star guys. I mean, Doc Rivers saying the plantar fasciitis stuff we talked about earlier. That's the antithesis of the of right. the present day NBA. Seemed like a lot of players weren't exactly thrilled with the system he was installing at at the top of the year, but Dane was hurt and losses were happening and people are generally unhappy when uh, you're not winning, right? So you could have chalked up to that, could have just chalked up to growing pains. Now it's year two. Now Dame is healthy. Now they've had a full off season with a non, you know, without COVID hanging over things. And obviously it's still around and relevant, et cetera. Insert caveats here, but it's not, it's not a debilitating factor towards work getting done at the NBA level anymore, regardless of outside of it. Um, and right. They they made these moves to do what we well, like we said to maximize Dame, just like the Lakers were supposed to around LeBron. So I am curious to see if this coach who also I mean a was handpicked by Neil O'Shea, not Joe Cronin, but also apparently has right. had some pretty strong um, not say so necessarily. I don't want to speak so definitively because I'm not in the room, but he at least has been a part of the nucleus of the decision making. Um, so I wonder, I, I am just curious to see how the Chauncey Billups head coach in tenure continues in year two in Portland. And I'm curious, what say you? No, I'm with you. I mean, we all know the importance of, of kind of how certain coaches got there. So your point about Neil is on point. And I mean, you know, and you, you talk about the chaos of last season and the mood, you know, the players obviously were also dealing with with a somewhat vague and mysterious investigation into, you know, Neil's work workplace conduct that, that led to him, you know, not being there anymore. And so it was a messy year where it, de, you know, derailed the, the construction of the organization because now you got a coach who wasn't picked by this GM. Um, you know, as far as the Dame effect, which is incredibly powerful and relevant in Portland, you know, Dame has absolutely given a, a massive thumbs up to Joe Cronin uh, in terms of the choice that was made to elevate him. And then, you know, like I said, talk to Chauncey, seemingly good vibes with Chauncey and Damien, but that relationship is going to be important because if you're trying to sell Dame on, essentially, let's, I mean, I told Chauncey straight up, like, I'll be honest, I've covered Dame's whole career. Like, it, <laughs> I feel like that'd be a tough conversation to have. Like, this dude has relished in the role of, you know, it, it's kind of the small market savior, one-man show, type of thing as opposed to, you know, going to chase a ring somewhere else. Um, so this idea of him, you know, the, the whole being bigger than the sum of the parts and him being part of that is counterintuitive. So um, that they also, I mean, listen, they beat the Kings. They have things to be, you know, excited about. They also obviously have major, you know, vulnerabilities. Like Nurkic did not look good. And I kept running into people that, Somewhat surprisingly, we're just candidly talking about how bad, you know, he might be um, and that, he, you know, 
and just people around the team, I guess, they just question if he's worth all that money. Um, and he so was, he, they've he got was their back issues. in the I mean, bubble, but the bubble was a long time ago. Right, right, and that's the question. So, um, but that's kind of the small market experience too. Like, you got a guy who's halfway decent, you know, and it's tough to replace them if you let him go. So, you know, I do understand, and and Dame has always rocked with him. So, I get it. But you know, they need him to be. Uh, 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 you know, a good player again, not just a guy who's done a few things in the past. Um, all right. What well, one last field for questions. I'm going to ask Sam one more. If anyone wants to pop in here and uh, pick the veteran's brain, uh, please do so. Um, but the last one for me, Sam, um, is there like a storyline, like Miles Turner, Indiana, or, you know, Charlotte potentially teetering on the edge of this Wembanyama race? Is there something that you have your eye on that you're waiting to see, particularly how it unfolds? And expectation, I mean, one thing that I've been saying a lot, maybe I've said it on the air, I can't keep track of everything I say because I talk way too much. Um, it's just, I've never, I've only been covering the league for a decade now, but. I've never seen 23, 24 teams all have such high optimism that they're going to both make the playoffs but also take a step above where they were last year. And obviously, not all these teams can do that. Not everyone can win 50 games and make the conference finals. And to go back to the theme of tension, right. that's where these, these actual shifting tectonic plates occur where a team starts 2-6 and six or 4-10 and 10 or – six and 20 that I was expecting to be not that. And that's when the stories that we look for in the transaction game actually emerge. Is there something that's top of your radar that you're most intrigued by? Uh, this, I was trying my best to come up with a low profile, you know, eclectic selection for you, <laughs> but I'm, I'm going to go the other way. It's, it's right in your backyard. It's, I mean, the nets to me, um, are, you know, obviously must-see TV. And to watch them get handled by New Orleans, which, I mean, I don't know how you feel. Like, would it shock you if, you know, if, if they were in the conference finals? Um, that, you know, the Nets, it's they had their main guy asking for the coach and the GM to be gone like five minutes ago, and that's still a real thing. And then you had Ben Simmons, you know, not looking very good in the opener um so you know Kyrie didn't shoot well now granted you know not many people do when they got those pelicans wing defenders coming at them um but if they aren't any good then it's let's go ahead and restart that story and see what it means because the the moods are going to shift you know just because Kyrie says they they went on a little team meeting during camp and oh we lost you Right at the end. Just because you're talking about – oh, sorry, Jake. You you're there? back now. You're back now. You said just because Kyrie had a team dinner and then you cut out. Uh, yeah, just because, it, you know, he he talked to our Sham Sharania recently uh, on the stadium platform and referenced this team meeting that it just – you know, you know the deal. The longer you do this, you, you get really numb to some of the cliche stuff like, okay, y'all had dinner together doesn't change what you know what the offseason looked like and and the mood is going to shift um if 
they, they don't play well. And also in terms of self-awareness and, and where even Kyrie's head is at, like, be honest, man, I'm looking at my phone three, four or five times. Like, did I really just see him highlight uh, the fact that a season is a long, I think he called it a, a long mother effing journey. And it was like coming from him, like, you know, he has not been part of the long journey for years. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, that one to me still could be explosive and, and we'll see where it goes. Um, but it'll be fun, man. There's, I love the parody that you're talking about because, you know, it's not like some of those years where we just were waiting for the Warriors and the Cavs to be in the finals again. You know, we just don't have that kind of clarity in either conference, really. Yeah, I think if we're going to forecast anything particular, you know, just just seeing them in person on Wednesday night, I know there's been optimism and excitement about Nick Claxton. them in person on Wednesday night. I know there's been optimism and excitement about Nick Claxton's growth. Claxton's growth. Um, but with him on the floor at the same time as Simmons, it does seem to kind of devalue a bit of what both of those guys do. Both of those guys, their their greatest attribute on the defensive side of the ball is their versatility to switch out in the perimeter. And I I, I think that is to say that Claxton is someone that is to say that Claxton is someone that the Nets have talked about openly in trade conversations in the past. It did seem like it was largely, or not maybe not largely, but partly in terms of not knowing how much he was going to command on the market this summer, and then they re-signed him and all was good there. But that's not to say Nick Claxton is a trade candidate. That's to say I think there's an obvious opportunity for them to get better without doing crazy wholesale changes if that continues to be an issue where, I mean, Zion and Valanciunas and Larry Nance and Brandon, like it was just a party. It was a block party on the, on the block in the paint at Barclays right. Center for the Pelicans. Zion was rusty and missing a lot of layups and is getting the ball back and doing a twisty through the air thing through those string bean bodies that Brooklyn had in there and finishing. And obviously Zion, Zion, there's not much, there's really, really very few NBA players ever uh, who could compare to what he is physically, but there are plenty of guys who have players ever uh, who could compare to what he is physically, but there are plenty of guys who have uh, similar caliber of like brute force they can bring, even like a John Morant, you know, coming through full steam ahead down the paint. I don't know if Brooklyn has much resistance to that right now. Have uh, similar caliber of like brute force they can bring, even like a John Morant. You know, coming through full steam ahead down the paint. I don't know if Brooklyn has much resistance to that right now. As an offshoot of that, I wonder what your two cents might be on, you know, you're kind of pushing it towards a possible Claxton being available situation. I'm a little stuck on the idea that, you know, like like Ben Simmons not playing in the playoffs last year. And I know that, you know, Kevin refuted, some of the reporting that was out there about his own level of frustration at Ben. And I get that. So maybe the specifics of some of the reporting were off, but the spirit of it, you know, and I know Kevin a fair amount, like I, you know, there's, I'm kind of looking at that dynamic and just wondering like if, if Kevin's decided that I'm just going to go ahead and, and keep my trade request off the table and I'm going to stay here. Then, I mean, if Ben plays like he did in that first game, 
then, you know, there's part of me that wouldn't be shocked if, if they don't see what the market looks like there. Yeah. I don't know Kevin nearly that well. I don't know him at all, to be honest. Um, and if he or any member of his team is listening, uh, let's make that happen. Um, he or any member of his team is listening. Uh, let's make that happen. Um, but <laughs> I will say that people around him and people with Brooklyn and people throughout his career have been pretty keen to point out to me that no matter what his opinion at a certain point in time about a any teammate could be, he is very, but I will say that people around him and people with Brooklyn and people throughout his career have been pretty keen to point out to me that no matter what his opinion at a certain point in time about a any teammate could be, he is very liable to change it, very liable to change it, um, and almost guaranteed to do so from various accounts. So... Um, whatever his true, true thoughts about Ben were, um, yeah, I heard, I heard vacillating opinions purportedly from Kevin about Ben. And I do think that it seems liable to change, um, at a certain point, if like you're saying, right. things continue. So yeah, it's going to be. Well, he's just like, and he's not alone. I, this that generation of player and the, the elite guys. The the part I can't relate to because even though I got years on Kevin, like he he's not he's a smart dude. He knows Father Time is coming. You know, LeBron's out here doing commercials with Father Time and, and you know <laughs> making it a, a Nike ad. But like it's true, and so I think everything with Kevin is going to be sped up in terms of thought processes, you know, and actions therein. If that makes sense, like. He's not going to waste his time deciding what he thinks about Ben because, you know, he's on the backside and he's running out of time to go, you know, do more in this league and in this game. So, um, you know, whatever his view is, I think they're going to hear it within a month or two. Yeah. And if it ever comes to that point, we've got a whole year's worth of information about plenty of teams who would be interested. And as long as he comes back and shows some type of – health and effectiveness, even if the fit isn't working. Like, it's not like Russ, right? Like, Russ is at the end of his career. There are personality uh, things, dynamics beneath the surface there. There is right. a lack of um, uh, growth potential just in terms of skills he doesn't have, being that he's far older in his life, level in his career. So I think if there's some type of resuscitation of, of what Ben's doing out there for, from game one, let alone not playing all of last year. I'm sure the market would would would, would be uh, bigger than the, the market for Russ, is all I'm saying, if it ever came to that. No, nope, I agree. And in general, I, you know, if, if you're Joe Sy, you, 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 whoever Kevin points at next in the room, like you, you probably probably got to give him one this time. You know what I mean? Because <laughs> last time you kept him at bay. <laughs> so whoever – you know, just, you don't want to be that guy who he points at this season if things aren't going well because uh, they did somehow manage to to put the, the kind of the genie back in the bottle during the summer. But we'll see where that situation goes. Well, you're that guy I pointed at to come on the show today. Thank you for granting my request despite uh, the, his, the recent history of, of Brooklyn leadership not requesting, uh, not granting Kevin's requests. So appreciate you coming through, man. <laughs> and, uh, of course, man. Enjoyed it. See you sometime down the road soon. Thank you, Jake. Be good. Take man. care, guys.